Section 33 of Complete Original Short Stories of Guy de Maupassant. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tatiana Chichilla, Columbus, Ohio. Section 33. Bertha. Dr. Bonnet, my old friend, one sometimes has friends older than oneself, had often invited me to spend some time with him at Rion, and, as I did not know Auvergne, I made up my mind to visit him in the summer of 1876. I arrived by the morning train, and the first person I saw on the platform was the doctor. He was dressed in a gray suit and wore a soft, black, wide-brimmed, high-crowned felt hat, narrow at the top like a chimney pot, a hat which hardly anyone except an overnaught would wear, which reminded one of a coal burner. Dressed like that, the doctor had the appearance of an old young man, with his spare body under his thin coat, and his large head covered with white hair. He embraced me with that evident pleasure which country people feel when they meet long-expected friends, and stretching out his arm, he said proudly, "'This is Auvergne!' I saw nothing before me except a range of mountains, whose summits, which resembled truncated cones, must have been extinct volcanoes. Then, pointing to the name of the station, he said, "'Rion, the fatherland of magistrates, the pride of the magistracy, and which ought rather to be the fatherland of doctors.' "'Why?' I asked. "'Why?' he repeated with a laugh. "'If you transpose the letters, you have the Latin word mori, to die. That is the reason why I settled here, my young friend.' and, delighted at his own joke, he carried me off, rubbing his hands. As soon as I had swallowed a cup of coffee, he made me go and see the town. I admired the druggist's house, and the other noted houses, which were all black, but pretty as bric-a-brac, with their facades of sculpted stone. I admired the statue of the Virgin, the patroness of butchers, and he told me an amusing story about this, which I will relate some other time. And then Dr. Bonnet said to me, "'I must beg you to excuse me for a few minutes while I go in and see a patient, and then I will take you to Chateau Guillon so as to show you the general aspect of the town, all the mountain chain of the Puy de Dome before lunch. You can wait for me outside. I shall only go upstairs and come down immediately. He left me outside one of those old, gloomy, silent, melancholy houses, which one sees in the provinces, and this one appeared to look particularly sinister, and I soon discovered the reason. All the large windows on the first floor were boarded halfway up. The upper part of them alone could be opened, as if one had wished to prevent the people who were locked up in that huge stone box from looking into the street." When the doctor came down again, I told him how it struck me, and he replied, "'You are quite right. The poor creature who is living there must never see what is going on outside. She is a madwoman, or rather an idiot, what you Normans would call a nyant. It is a miserable story, but a very singular pathological case at the same time. Shall I tell you?' I begged him to do so, and he continued, Twenty years ago, the owners of this house, who were my patients, had a daughter who was like all other girls, but I just soon discovered that while her body became admirably developed, her intellect remained stationary. She began to walk very early, but she could not talk. At first I thought she was deaf, but I soon discovered that although she heard perfectly, she did not understand anything that was said to her. Violent noises made her start and frightened her, without her understanding how they were caused. She grew up into a superb woman, but she was dumb from an absolute want of intellect. I tried all means to introduce a gleam of intelligence into her brain, but nothing succeeded. I thought I noticed that she knew her nurse, though as soon as she was weaned, she failed to recognize her mother. She could never pronounce that word, which is the first that children utter, and the last which soldiers murmur when they are dying on the field of battle. She sometimes tried to talk, but she produced nothing but incoherent sounds. When the weather was fine, she laughed continually, and emitted low cries which might be compared to the twittering of birds. When it rained, she cried and moaned in a mournful, terrifying manner, which sounded like the howling of a dog before a death occurs in a house. She was fond of rolling on the grass, as young animals do, and of running about madly, and she would clap her hands every morning when the sun shone into her room, and would insist, by signs, on being dressed as quickly as possible, so that she might get out. 
She did not appear to distinguish between people, between her mother and her nurse, or between her father and me, or between the coachman and the cook. I particularly liked her parents, who were very unhappy on her account, and went to see them nearly every day. I dined with them quite frequently, which enabled me to remark that Bertha, they had called her Bertha, seemed to recognize the various dishes and to prefer some to others. At that time she was twelve years old, but as fully formed in figure as a girl of eighteen and taller than I was. Then the idea struck me of developing her greediness, and by this means of cultivating some slight power of discrimination in her mind, and to force her by the diversity of flavors, if not to reason, at any rate to arrive at instinctive distinctions, which would of themselves constitute a kind of process that was necessary to thought. Later on, by appealing to her passions, and by carefully making use of those which could serve our purpose, we might hope to obtain a kind of reaction on her intellect, and by degrees increase the unconscious action of her brain. One day I put two plates before her, one of soup and the other of very sweet vanilla cream. I made her taste each of them successively, and then I let her choose for herself, and she ate the plate of cream. In a short time I made her very greedy, so greedy that it appeared as if the only idea she had in her head was the desire for eating. She perfectly recognized the various dishes, and stretched out her hands toward those that she liked, and took hold of them eagerly, and she used to cry when they were taken from her. Then I thought I would try and teach her to come to the dining room when the dinner bell rang. It took a long time, but I succeeded in the end. In her vacant intellect, a vague correlation was established between sound and taste, a correspondence between the two senses, an appeal from one to the other, and consequently a sort of connection of ideas, if one can call that kind of instinctive hyphen between two organic functions an idea. And so I carried my experiments further, and taught her with much difficulty to recognize mealtimes by the clock. It was impossible for me, for a long time, to attract her attention to the hands, but I succeeded in making her remark the clockwork and the striking apparatus. The means I employed were very simple. I asked them not to have the bell rung for lunch, and everybody got up and went into the dining room when the little brass hammer struck twelve o'clock, but I found great difficulty in making her learn to count the strokes. She ran to the door each time she heard the clock strike, but by degrees she learned that all strokes had not the same value as far as regarded meals and she frequently fixed her eyes, guided by her ears, on the dial of the clock. When I noticed that, I took care every day at twelve and at six o'clock to place my fingers on the figures twelve and six, and as soon as the moment when she was waiting for had arrived, I soon noticed that she attentively followed the motion of the small brass hands, which I had often turned in her presence. She had understood. Perhaps I ought rather to say that she had grasped the idea. I had succeeded in getting the knowledge, or rather the sensation, of the time into her, just as is the case with carp, who certainly have no clocks when they are fed every day at exactly the same time. When I had obtained that result, all the clocks and watches in the house occupied her attention almost exclusively. She spent her time in looking at them, listening to them, and in waiting for mealtime, and once something very funny happened. The striking apparatus of a pretty little Louis Sixteenth clock that hung at the head of her bed, having got out of order, she noticed it. She sat for twenty minutes with her eyes on the hands, waiting for it to strike ten, but when the hands passed the figure, she was so astonished at not hearing anything, so stupefied was she indeed, that she sat down, no doubt overwhelmed by a feeling of violent emotion, such as attacks us in the face of some terrible catastrophe. And she had the wonderful patience to wait until eleven o'clock to see what would happen, and as she naturally heard nothing, she was suddenly either seized with a wild fit of rage at having been deceived and imposed upon by appearances, or else overcome by the fear which some frightened creature feels at some terrible mystery, and by the furious impatience of a passionate individual who meets with some obstacle, she took up the tongs from the fireplace, and struck the clock so violently that she broke it to pieces in a moment. It was evident, therefore, that her brain did act and calculate, 
It was evident, therefore, that her brain did act and calculate, obscurely it is true, and within very restricted limits, for I could never succeed in making her distinguish persons as she distinguished the time, and to stir her intellect it was necessary to appeal to her passions, in the material sense of the world, and we soon had another, and alas, a very terrible proof of this. She had grown up into a splendid girl, a perfect type of a race, a sort of lovely and stupid Venus. She was sixteen, and I have rarely seen such perfection of form, such suppleness and regular features. I said she was a Venus, yes, a fair, stout, vigorous Venus, with large, bright, vacant eyes, which were as blue as the flowers of the flax plant. She had a large mouth with full lips, the mouth of a glutton, of a sensualist, a mouth made for kisses. Well, one morning her father came into my consulting room with a strange look on his face, and, sitting down without even replying to my greeting, he said, I want to speak to you about a very serious matter. Would it be possible... Would it be possible for Bertha to marry? Bertha to marry? Why, it is quite impossible. Yes, I know, I know, he replied. But reflect, doctor. Don't you think, perhaps, we hoped, if she had children, it would be a great shock to her, but a great happiness, and who knows whether maternity might not rouse her intellect? I was in a state of great perplexity. He was right, and it was possible that such a new situation, and that wonderful instinct of maternity, which beats in the hearts of the lower animals as it does in the heart of a woman, which makes the hen fly at a dog's jaws to defend her chickens, might bring about a revolution, an utter change in her vacant mind, and set the motionless mechanism of her thoughts in motion. And then, moreover, I immediately remembered a personal instance. Some years previously, I had owned a spaniel bitch who was so stupid that I could do nothing with her. But when she had had puppies, she became, if not exactly intelligent, almost like many other dogs who had not been thoroughly broken. As soon as I foresaw the possibility of this, the wish to get Bertha married grew in me, not so much out of friendship for her and her poor parents, as from scientific curiosity. What could happen? It was a singular problem. I said in reply to her father, Perhaps you are right. You might make the attempt, but you will never find a man to consent to marry her. I have found somebody, he said in a low voice. I was dumbfounded and said, Somebody really suitable? Someone of your own rank and position in society? Decidedly, he said. Oh, and may I ask his name? I came on purpose to tell you and to consult you. It is Monsieur Gaston Dubois de Lucelle. I felt inclined to exclaim, the wretch, but I held my tongue, and after a few moments' silence I said, Oh, very good, I see nothing against it. The poor man shook me heartily by the hand. She is to be married next month, he said. Monsieur Gaston Dubois de Lucelle was a scapegrace of good family who, after having spent all that he had inherited from his father, and having incurred debts in all kinds of doubtful ways, had been trying to discover some other means of obtaining money, and he had discovered this method. He was a good-looking young fellow, and in capital health, but fast, one of that odious race of provincial fast men, and he appeared to be to me as suitable as anyone, and could be got rid of later by making him an allowance. He came to the house to pay his addresses, and to strut about before the idiot girl, who, however, seemed to please him. He brought her flowers, kissed her hands, sat at her feet, and looked at her with affectionate eyes, but she took no notice of any of his attentions, and did not make any distinction between him and the other persons who were about her. However, the marriage took place, and you may guess how my curiosity was aroused. I went to see Bertha the next day to try and discover from her looks whether any feelings had been awakened in her, but I found her just the same as she was every day, wholly taken up with the clock and dinner while he, on the contrary, appeared really in love, and tried to rouse his wife's spirits and affection by little endearments and such caresses as one bestows on a kitten, he could think of nothing better. I called upon the married couple pretty frequently, and I soon perceived that the young woman knew her husband, and gave him those eager looks which she had hitherto only bestowed on sweet dishes. 
She followed his movements, knew his step on the stairs or in the neighboring rooms, clapped her hands when he came in, and her face was changed and brightened by the flames of profound happiness and of desire. She loved him with her whole body and with all her soul, to the very depths of her poor, weak soul, and with all her heart, that poor heart of some grateful animal. It was really a delightful and innocent picture of simple passion, of carnal and yet modest passion, such as nature had implanted in mankind, before man had complicated and disfigured it by all the various shades of sentiment. But he soon grew tired of this ardent, beautiful, dumb creature, and did not spend more than an hour during the day with her, thinking it sufficient that if he came home at night, and she began to suffer in consequence. She used to wait for him from morning till night with her eyes on the clock. She did not even look after the meals now, for he took all his away from home. Clermont, Chateau Guyon, Royat, no matter where he was, as long as he was not obliged to come home. She began to grow thin. Every other thought, every other wish, every other expectation, and every confused hope disappeared from her mind, and the hours during which she did not see him became hours of terrible suffering to her. Soon he ceased to come home regularly of nights. He spent them with women at the casino at Royat and did not come home until daybreak, but she never went to bed before he returned. She remained sitting motionless in an easy chair, with her eyes fixed on the hands of the clock, which turned so slowly and regularly around the china face on which the hours were painted. She heard the trot of his horse in the distance and sat up with a start, and when he came into the room she got up with the movements of an automaton and pointed to the clock, as if to say, look how late it is. And he began to be afraid of this amorous and jealous half-witted woman, and flew into a rage, as brutes do, and one night he even went so far as to strike her, so they sent for me. When I arrived she was writhing and screaming in a terrible crisis of pain, anger, passion. How do I know what? Can one tell what goes on in such undeveloped brains? I calmed her by subcutaneous injections of morphine, and forbade her to see that man again, for I saw clearly that marriage would infallibly kill her by degrees. Then she went mad. Yes, my dear friend, that idiot went mad. She is always thinking of him and waiting for him. She waits for him all day and night, awake or asleep, at this very moment, ceaselessly. When I saw her getting thinner and thinner, and as she persisted in never taking her eyes off the clocks, I had them removed from the house. I thus made it impossible for her to count the hours, and to try to remember from her indistinct reminiscences at what time he used to come home formerly. I hoped to destroy the recollection of it in time, and to extinguish that ray of thought which I kindled with so much difficulty. The other day I tried an experiment. I offered her my watch. She took it and looked at it for some time. Then she began to scream terribly, as if the sight of that little object had suddenly awakened her memory, which was beginning to grow indistinct. She is pitiably thin now, with hollow and glittering eyes, and she walks up and down ceaselessly, like a wild beast in its cage. I have had gratings put on the windows, boarded them up halfway, and have had the seats fixed on the floor, as to prevent her from looking to see whether he is coming. Oh, her poor parents! What a life they must lead! We had got to the top of the hill, and the doctor turned round and said to me, Look at Riome from here. The gloomy town looked like some ancient city. Behind it, a green wooden plain studded with towns and villages, and bathed in a soft blue haze, extended until it was lost in the distance. Far away on my right, there was a range of lofty mountains with round summits, or else cut off flat, as if with a sword, and the doctor began to enumerate the villages, towns, and hills, and to give me the history of all of them. But I did not listen to him. I was thinking of nothing but the madwoman, and I only saw her. She seemed to be hovering over that vast extent of country like a mournful ghost, and I asked him abruptly, "'What has become of the husband?' My friend seemed rather surprised, but after a few moments' hesitation, he replied, "'He is living at Royat on an allowance that they made him, and is quite happy. He leads a very fast life.' As we were slowly going back, both of us silent and rather low-spirited, an English dog-cart, drawn by a thoroughbred horse, came up behind us and passed us rapidly. The doctor took me by the arm. 
There he is, he said. I saw nothing except a gray felt hat cocked over one ear above a pair of broad shoulders, driving off in a cloud of dust. End of section 33. A recording by Tatiana Chichilla, Columbus, Ohio.